You're listening to the Super Talk podcast, produced by the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, shaping profit to member super. Hello and welcome to Super Talk. This episode is the audio recording of a webinar AIST hosted on the 10th of February 2021 on the proposed best financial interest duty contained in the draft Your Future, Your Super legislation. The webinar was hosted by Eva Schierlink, CEO of AIST. Our discussion is on the best financial interest duty uh, and the uh, proposed amendments in the bill. A bill that we feel will have significant implications for the operation and the governance of super funds and ultimately, of course, um, member outcomes. Um, Many of you attending today's session are not AIST members, um, but are welcome to all of you. Uh, Today's panel members belong to organisations that are uh, outside of the superannuation industry, if you like, Um, though the ACTU and AI Group are heavily involved in the governance of profit to member funds through their nomination of either employee or employer directors uh, onto super fund boards. The organisations represented on the panel don't always agree on everything, Uh, but we do all share the view that trustee directors should be held to to the absolute highest standards in executing their fiduciary duties uh, to the members of super funds. They have all raised varying concerns about the best financial interest duty bill in their submissions to the government uh, in relation to the exposure draft that we've seen and so it should make for some uh, good, robust discussion. So on our panel today, we have Natalie Cambrell, Principal uh, Solicitor at KQH Lawyers. Um, Natalie is a member of the Superannuation Committee of the Law Council of Australia, and uh, in that capacity, she contributed to the, um, the writing of the submission for the Law Council. We have Peter Byrne, who's the Chief Policy Officer at AI Group, uh, Scott Connolly, who's the Assistant Secretary at the ACTU, and Kristen Gurgis, who is Head of Policy at AICD. So thank you uh, to our four panellists for joining us. But before I start firing questions at you, I'd like to quickly run through some of the context of the Best Financial Interest Duty Bill. It's Part of the government's Your Future, Your Super package that was released for consultation um, back in November, November 26th in 2020, uh, and it comprised exposure draft legislation and explanatory materials on three subject matters. The first was single default accounts, or also known as stapling, uh, underperformance in superannuation, and then lastly, the best financial interest duty, which is what concerns us today. Parliament will sit again next week and it is expected that the legislative package will be tabled in the very near future, hence the timeliness of our discussion today. There is generally in principle support, including from AIST, for the objectives of the package. But submitters um, to the draft bills have also voiced broad concern about how and whether these bills will meet those objectives. The bills depart from the recommendations of both the Royal and the Productivity Commissions in a number of key aspects that could pose, we believe, a risk for member outcomes. In addition, the package is a bit light on detail, allowing the making of substantive regulations, I beg your pardon, that while they can be disallowed in retrospect, 
avoid the need for parliamentary debate upfront. So this is particularly the case with the draft materials relating to the best financial interest duty, which is probably the least well debated of the three bills and the least, the least uh, publicly commented on uh, in the lead up to the parliamentary sittings next week. So that is the focus of our discussion. A quick overview on the key features of this bill. It introduces the word financial into the best interests duty, appearing suggest, to suggest that in general, directors are not already acting in the best financial interests of beneficiaries. The legislation introduces a reverse burden of proof, whereby the trustee is taken to have not acted in the member's financial interest unless they can prove otherwise. Again, there, there's a presumption against the trustees acting in the member's interests. The bill includes a regulation making power that gives this and future governments the power to ban investments or expenditure, regardless of whether they are in the interests of members. So it's quite an extraordinary interventionist power that is being provided in the bill. And it also introduces a strict liability offence for contravening record keeping obligations, but doesn't give a lot of detail on what, on what those obligations are or how you would be perceived to have contravened it. So let's, let's start our discussion. And maybe Peter, uh, welcome to you. Maybe I can start with a question to you. The introduction of the word financial to the best interest duty, the government says, is a response to the Productivity Commission. Now the AI group submission stated that you strongly support that particular recommendation of the Productivity Commission, which states that the government should pursue a clearer articulation of what it means for a trustee to act in members' best interests under the CIS Act. Could you outline for us, um, you know, why you support that recommendation and, and whether what you found to be deficient in the current, um, in the current law? Sure. So thanks very much, Eber, and good morning, everyone. So um, we, did we did say in our submission on the exposure draft materials that we supported the productivity Commission recommendation about giving greater clarity. Um, interestingly, the Productivity Commission uh, recommendation doesn't use the phrase best financial um, interest and nor does it recommend adopting that term. Um, just to paraphrase it, it says that the government should clarify what it means for a trustee to act in best, best member's best interests and that should reflect a couple of principles that the trustee should act in a man manner consistent with what an informed member might reasonably expect, and that that should be manifest in member outcomes. Um, why did we support it? Well, uh, there's a number of concerns about uh, the running of superannuation funds. Uh, these were highlighted pretty graphically in the uh, Financial Services um, Royal Commission. So that commission revealed a lot of instances where the interests of shareholders were placed ahead of those of members that where fees were levied for no service, um, where the transfer of my super products were delayed, um, members were prompted to remain in higher fee products, people were transferred into higher fee products. Um, sponsoring entities um, sought to influence investment decisions. 
there were issues of conflicted advice. There were merge, merger proposals that were not considered. And all of these things were um, agreed to or not acted upon, depending, by um, trustee directors um, who are bound by a fiduciary duty. And so we think that clarification of that duty to make sure that fund uh, that super fund directors know what it means to act in members' best interest is clear. So that's why um, I think the story about why it's deficient is pretty long story. And I think most of the today's seminars really devoted to that. But, you know, in a nutshell, uh, what the government's proposal um, does, it, it does not clarify it. It, it embroils uh, trustee directors in red tape and diverts them from acting in members' best interest. And it creates an extraordinary override for the regulator to insist that directors act in a way that might not be in members' best interest. So I'm just touching the surface there, surface there. I appreciate that really that's just a, a, a taster of what's to come in the rest of the webinar. Thanks, Peter. So you think that the solution that the government has come up with in terms of introducing the word financial into the best interest duty doesn't necessarily solve the problem? Uh, it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't clarify anything. Um, it has, it's just another word. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't achieve any purpose. Okay, thank you. So Natalie, then, from a legal perspective, um, the legal, you know, there is a view that the duty isn't in need of clearer articul articulation and that this change is entirely unnecessary. Um, so here the, the, the government has relied on the Productivity Commission, but not on Hain. Can you maybe step us through um, what um, Commissioner Hain's uh, view was and what the other le legal concerns are that you have with the change of the duty, Natalie? Yeah, thanks, Eva. Well, yes, it was very uh, few short months after the productivity recommendation that Peter just stepped us through that we had the, the final report from the Royal Commission. And of course, remembering that um, Commissioner Kenneth Hayne, uh, a very distinguished former High Court judge, you know, 50 years um, in the law, the Royal Commission process itself was very intense, a lot of information gathering and, and questioning um, and a lot of real life case studies that were examined. And then after that incredible process, Commissioner Hayne um, said specifically, the best interest covenant did set the necessary standards for trustees. It's just that the standards need to be applied according to their terms, is what he said. So they don't need further specific elaboration by way of legislative amendment. So that's why I think, um, you know, I felt that, why was it that the Productivity Commission's recommendation, which wasn't even necessarily about legislative reform, as, as Peter mentioned, but why that recommendation had been um, said as being preferred in the explanatory materials. And then even aside actually from this debate about Productivity Commission versus Royal Commission report, a couple of specific legal concerns are that, you know, the best interest covenant derives from, from case law. There's a, there's a history and there's a, a subtlety that comes from that. And it's clear from the case law that best interest does usually mean best financial interest, but it's just not that, um, it, it, there's some flexibility where, where the matter's not that binary. So I think there's, there's a risk perhaps of if this gets passed, that there'll be perhaps a more simplistic and singular focus on, on short-term financial outcomes, which isn't always perhaps the right approach. But actually, the, and, and the most obvious legal objection really is that 
it was, I think it was only a couple of years ago, we had that new covenant added to the CIS um, covenants about promoting the financial interests of beneficiaries. So we already have a very specific financially focused covenant. I just don't see really why we need, against all that background, why we need to add the word financial to, to, to the covenant. So Natalie, just by way of follow-up to that, is there, is there a, a legal understanding of what the word financial means in this context? Uh, having had, you know, the, the word financial added into that other covenant, has that been tested at all at law? No, it hasn't. So I, th I think that's the point. But if, if there is concern, say, by, by regulators about um, trustee decision-making having been wrongly focused, that's the covenant to pursue. That's the that's the the thing that we could perhaps have some more regulatory guidance over or, or case law in time. Um, yeah, so that, that's right. All right. Thanks, Natalie. Chris, I might come to you now, having, having read all of your submissions, obviously, uh, prior to today's session. Um, AICD seems to support the Hain position of, you know, don't legislate when you don't need to. Um, but do we need to acknowledge, um, you know, that some of the issues that Peter outlined before and that the, the Productivity Commission outlined? How can we be making sure that trustees are discharging their duties to members without this change? Thanks, Ava, and thanks for the opportunity to speak to your members today, and, and um, good morning, everyone. Um, so, uh, look, I think, as people have mentioned, the issue of superannuation governance is a, is a well-trodden path for various commissions and inquiries. I'm, I'm sure um, others on this call are keeping track of the number of inquiries that have occurred into superannuation over the years, um, and it is many. Um, from our perspective, I, I think we, you need to look at what is the regulatory framework applying to the superannuation trustees and their duties. And, you know, only from 1 January 2021 is it actually clear that ASIC is actually the conduct regulator for this sector. So that was a key gap which Commissioner Hain identified um, during the course of his inquiry. And, and clearly APRA uh, maintains a supervisory approach on the prudential side and th there will be information um, sharing between those two bodies as there should be if APRA identifies um, through its supervisory work that duties may have been breached, then that's something that, that will properly and appropriately be sent over to, to ASIC as the conduct regulator. So I think the reality is that there is very little jurisprudence in this area. So um, we've only really had one case being taken to court that examined um, whether the um, best interest duty had been discharged effectively, which is the um, Apper and Kelly case, the IWF case. And in fact, in that case, um, the, the regulator failed in its assertion that um, the, the duty had been breached. Um, on, on the insertion of the word financial though, I think it's important to recognize that on one view, this is, is a very minor change. You know, um, it's a super trustees are trustees and, and by that it means you must act in the interests, generally the financial interests of those you, who you're operating on behalf of. Um, so from that sense, we, we question the utility of it um, and, and really would, would like more elucidation about well, what is the, the driving force behind that. If you do feel that um, organisations are not acting in those best interests, then um, you know, those cases should be prosecuted effectively. Um, we have a role to play, AIST, others in the government space in terms of educating directors and trustees about their obligations. But you can't get away from the fact that you need two active, well-resourced and focused regulators um, holding directors to account where they do um, step outside the bounds of the law. So 
that's our position. So we don't see it as a necessary change. And there are other elements, obviously, of the, the bill which um, are a concern. And, and, in, and in particular, that there seems to be a mindset that super trustees are not doing the right thing. And so the onus is on them to show that they are. So that's a, a pretty fundamental concern from a, from a governance and a um, director's duty perspective. Yeah, it's quite an extraordinary starting position, isn't it? Um, AIST super system is recognised around the world as, as something to strive for. Um, and, and yet here we have legislation that seems to, you know, um, Im imply that, that trustee directors are, are not acting in the best interests of their members and not meeting their fiduciary obligations. Um, Scott, I might move to you. What is the ACTU's view in relation of this duty and the payments to shareholders um, when it comes to the best financial interests of members? Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks, Eva, and thanks everybody for, for joining us this morning. Um, a couple of things. I don't agree, disagree with anything that's been said. I, I think you know, the comments so far have been you know, really on point. Um, as a trustee, I, I think there's part of me that thinks it's particularly insulting, and I, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of reflection on what's been done, what's been achieved across uh, the sector in the best interests of members, demonstrably, um, and then to uh, have to deal with the conversation like we're dealing with today. Um, is, is somewhat galling, but it's the reality that we're, uh, we're working with. And I, I think we take sort of, maybe just take a step back from the perspe our perspective. And when I think we think about this from um, what this is, you know, it's, it's a worker's money, it's mandated in a national savings system. And very much you know, to your point, uh, Eva, in that context, um, you know, profit payments to shareholders um, you have no place in that system and the ACTUs have a, had a very firm and long held view um, that you know, profit and payments of this nature have, have uh, are completely inconsistent as was demonstrated by you know, those cases in the Royal Commission, very inconsistent with, um, with members' uh, best interest, including and substantially, of course, their financial best interest. So the fact that we have uh, Treasury confirming um, in discussions we've had of them to date, that they will be uh, allowing um, payments uh, to profit uh, entities, the dividend payments effectively, um, just is really an indication of the, the hypocrisy and ideological aspects uh, of this bill. Uh, you know, and our assessment is pretty stark that it's really designed to do nothing more than an attack, uh, again, the best performing, um, you know, part of the sector and if this is about members' interests, then how, how can this proposal be consistent uh, with uh, that outcome? And I think that's sort of the uh, the approach we take in this regard, that yeah, every dollar we're talking about in this network um, has to be accounted for absolutely. And it always needs to be a consideration of that um, could have, what that could have meant for a worker and their retirement. And in that context, um, profit, and payments to shareholders just don't stack up. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Scott. So there's uh, materia materiality uh, is is an interesting missing point, I think, in this legislation too. It seems that um, you know it it applies to every dollar that is sent, and I, th I think in your submission you refer to you know including the the purchase of a stapler. Um, yet on the other hand, you've got um, you know. Uh, 
a class of payment of your like if your dividends to shareholders um, being excluded um, altogether. What are the implications though um, for members around that lack of a materiality threshold in your view? Uh, I think, and for directors? Yeah, just to pick up the point you made. You know, Eva, I, look, I think to start with this, you know, clearly, you know, prudent management you know, is, is a focus of trustees and it's, it's central to the discharge of their duties and being focused on uh, justifying every uh, action and every decision they make in the context of regulatory oversight and review is completely appropriate and, and we need strong regulators to support the system. Uh, but in that context, um, you know, bearing in mind that we do act uh, responsibly and, you know, very conscious of the duties that we, we're we responsible for discharging, it means that this reverse owners provision, the lack of materiality as we sort of make it in our submission, you know, really means that you know, every single expense you know, should be um, and you know, likely to be uh, subject to uh, intense scrutiny and oversight and you know, legal advice and considerations of is it um, within uh, the financial uh, or best financial interests or, or is, it, is it not? So it goes to the stapler, it goes to you know, the contract with your insurance provider your, uh, and the profit components invariably of that, um, that contract, the, profit components of your contract with Microsoft or your IT firm, as I'm sure all of those provisions are not provided uh, without profit, um, you know, um, of course, are built into those commercial relationships. So it really just, when you think about what practically that means uh, for trustees, um, it is, it's bordering on uh, the ridiculous, let alone the impossible for trustees to try and start making uh, those delineations. And what does that mean for members? Well, at its worst is we have funds and trustees distracted, caught up with our complexity, accounting, administrative burdens, all of which distract from the discharge of their core function, which is achieving you know, better retirement outcomes and better performance of the fund at the least possible cost for, for members' retirements. And that's um, a very significant concern for us about what this means in the long term uh, for the trustees and the funds to be able to discharge their duties and achieve uh, the outcomes that they have historically achieved uh, for members. And you can sort of, you know, draw the distinction about core and non-core, but again, it's it's ludicrous in, in the sense of, you know, what, what is core and what's non-core? You know, is that the, the time that we're gonna be spending at our boards uh, making the decisions about, yes, that's okay, it's core, it's not core. And then all of which you do in the context that you, you can't be secure in knowing that that is a, decision that will stack up um, given the absence of detail in the regulations and the proposals that we've seen today. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Peter, you've looked at this, you know, distinction of, I think what Scott referred to there as core and non-core, I think in the in the legislation, it's termed essential expenditure and discretionary and non-essential non expenditure. Um, do you think this provides any clarity? Is it useful? What, what is the AI group's view in relation to that change? Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks. It's a good question, and and we're thinking about the clarity about what it means to act in members' best interest here. So what they've done, and there's an extraordinary focus on a narrow class of um, decisions, uh, and they relate to expenditure. And we might come back to that. Uh, and then what they do is they say there's two different classes of expenditure. Um, there's core or essential, as you mentioned. Okay, that is core or essential to the operation of the entity. 
And then there's another class of expenditure that might be considered discretionary or non-essential to the ongoing operation. So, and then that, what they do is they say, well, if you're making um, a decision about expenditure in class A, you've got to um, have, go through a set of decision-making criteria. If, you make, if you're making a decision in class B, about expenditure in class B, you go through another set of criteria, a more rigorous set of criteria. Now, there's several shortcomings in the approach. One is um, it's not clear that these classes of expenditure are exhaustive or whether there are other categories of expenditure that aren't covered. It's not, not clear. They're not logically exhaustive. So it's not clear in the legislation that, it, that expenditure is either in A or B. And it doesn't say anything about what happens if it's not in A or B. And that sounds pedantic, but um, in view of the reverse onus of proof and in view of the non-materiality, that's a very important um, area of uncertainty. Um, and it's not clear what expending is in each category. It's going to be what might be considered to be discretionary or essential and what is essential and core. So it's not clear what are, what are what's in each category and then it's not clear what it means to act in members best interest in relation to decisions that aren't related to expenditure in these two categories. and all of the two-thirds three-quarters of the issues that are covered in the Royal Commission relate to non-expenditure decisions or non-expenditure actions or neglected to take action the focus is in the explanatory memorandum is on expenditure. Now, the reverse onus of proof applies to the general issue of acting in members' best financial interests, or it would be under if this were enacted. And there are the there is no clarity. There is just confusion created by this approach. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Peter. I think, uh, you know, a, a lot of boards, if this is enacted in its current form, will, will waste a lot of board time discussing what, what for their purposes will be essential and non-essential expenditure. There's a few questions coming through from our audience. So thank you very much um, for that. We're, uh, I think, at 266 participants at the moment. So apologies ahead of time if we can't get to all of your questions. Um, there are a couple of questions, though, around climate change that I see. Um, and if I read out this one here from Rita Harris, for many years, trustees were uh, reluctant to take climate change into account because there wasn't the data to demonstrate financial best interests, uh, although though there was always a strong case that taking climate change or ESG into account was in the overall long-term best interests of members. It seems that adding the word financial limits trustees and the ability for courts to be flexible in interpretation. Chris, what, what are your views in relation to this? I know that um, you know, AICD has been thinking a lot around the climate change issue and, and um, governance requirements. Thanks, Deborah, and thanks for those who asked the questions on the uh, Q&A. So, so it, it is a really interesting question. Um, there's a question around time horizons as well, which I think has come up in some of the questions around does this, um, the proposed insertion of the word financial um, presuppose a focus on short-term financial just versus longer term? Our view would be that that, that is not the case, that um, trustees, um, given you know, superannuation is obviously a long-term 
investment and as Scott said, it's mandated as part of our system that directors should be looking at the long-term financial interests of organisations. And so that doesn't kind of suddenly require you to focus more on, on short-term um, short return to members that might not be sustainable over the longer term. So then, so then that kind of takes us to the, um, I guess, the vexed issue of climate change and how boards approach that issue. And I should say, speaking more broadly, that boards are much more focused on these issues than they were in the past. I think they accept that it's a core part of their, their risk and strategy obligations. Um, they understand the re regulatory scrutiny that's being applied, the investor scrutiny. It's interesting. Um, I, I see that in, in the past, maybe that the data wasn't there to support some of maybe potentially to support um, uh, investments um, from a financial perspective. But over recent years, I think it's really, there has been a bit of a tipping point where, where now it is easy to show um, that there is um, actually a financial interest in, in low carbon um, investments. So I think organisations obviously need to think carefully about how they, they assemble their portfolio. Um, but I, I think with climate change, you can take a, a view and, I think this is a question around, I guess, how do you document decision-making and, and, and the degree of um, information that is provided to the board so that they can actually make an informed decision that um, making investments with the climate change risk associated with it is actually in the best financial interest of members because you, you don't want to be making investments that um, may deteriorate rapidly over the longer term um, should policy settings change or, or should... Um, you know, more more direct government action um, take place. So I, I, it's a it's a long winded answer. It is a complex issue though, and, and one which ourselves and others are obviously grappling with. Um, and that's something which AICD is, is focusing on this year: is how do we support directors in their um, climate governance role? Um, but I, I, do, I do think um, it would be um, wrong for for um, trustees and those that advise them to think that um, the best financial interest means you suddenly. Um, should, should scrap investments which you think could have a good um, environmental impact. Rather, you just need to probably have more rigour applied to those deliberations. All right, thanks, Chris. Um, the other interesting part of, of this proposed legislation um, and ties in, I guess, to, to the risks here in the decision-making for, for trustee directors is the reversal of the burden of proof, which is a pretty significant uh, proposal here. Usually, uh, you know, the burden of proof is only reversed uh, in very significant criminal uh, matters and is very limited in the in the civil jurisdiction and usually only in, in areas where it is difficult to find proof where you would think with all of the data collection points here that our regulators have, uh, they've got plenty of, of look through. Natalie, from, your, from a legal point of view in relation to this reversal of the onus of proof, can you explain maybe where this would you know usually appear in the law um what the impact would be um you know for, for boards for individual directors as well thanks eva well yeah just to reiterate um i mean it feels like it's a bit of a contravention of a, a legal vibe um but um, parliament does have the power to to reverse the onus uh, or the burden of proof by legislation but it it, it um, case law indicates it really should be justified and, and reasonable. So there are some examples in, in statutes, as you, as you were saying before, and in particular in some civil cases, there, there are some examples, and it's usually where um, it's about protecting rights that are otherwise sort of difficult to protect. So 
think there was a study done in 2014 and there were 13 particular statutes where this um, this had been done. So one example, and I don't purport to be sort of across all, all the examples, they're sort of scattered through the law, but one is uh, in the Fair Work Act, uh, a situation where the reversal applies, where an employee is bringing, say, an unfair dismissal claim um, and would otherwise have to produce evidence about their employer's decision making um, in order to bring their case. So that's an example of where it's sort of protecting, I guess, um, people who might find it hard otherwise to, to protect their rights. But I think in this case, um, even if we say, well, Parliament has the power and even if, uh, you know, the explanatory memorandum tried to say the ways in which it was justified and reasonable, we think that the, the particular impact on directors is, is very onerous. So remembering that this is proposed in the context of a, a contravention of the proposed um, best financial interest covenant and penalties can apply. So penalties on the individual director. So in such proceeding, it would be presumed that the director had breached the covenant unless he or she adduces evidence to the contrary. But um, there's another common law principle that says an individual is entitled to claim privilege against exposure to penalties and can decide to remain silent. So it's sort of like the uh, civil version of the, um, you know, the, the right against self-incrimination. So this proposed reversal in this, in this bill does basically try to eliminate the common law right. Um, and that right was developed over, over many centuries, of course, um, again, a protective um, mechanism to try and prevent people effectively betraying themselves and then exposing themselves to, to a penalty in that, in that process. So I think it's difficult for directors, given you know, there are indemnification limits, you can't be indemnified from trust assets for these sort of penalties. It's very difficult to get insurance. You know, it's, it's, it's increasingly becoming uh, very, very onerous for, for directors. And actually, I think some of this whole debate could be really removed if, in fact, there was a, um, a different requirement, which was just simply to say, well, what is the evidence that Parliament or government wants trustees and directors to, to, to maintain? Let's just make it a clear requirement about having evidence. Let's not reverse the, the, the burden of proof. And that would be something that the regulators could do through their, you know, prudential standard making powers currently. Yeah, well, that's a variety of ways. That's right. That way, regulations or even just amending the Act um, it, itself. All right. Thanks, Natalie. Um, Chris says, um, you know, the AICD representing uh, directors in this country, um, you know, you've noted in your submission that that this reversal of the burden of proof wasn't recommended by the Productivity Commission, wasn't recommended by the Royal Commission recommendation. What do you think the, uh, you know, potential outcomes might, might be? Do you think there will be a glut of directors willing to step up to um, take on a board position in a super fund? It's a good question, Eva, and, and just to touch on Natalie's point, look, it's a, it's a pretty fundamental legal principle that you don't reverse the onus of proofs unless there's very good reasons to, and the Attorney General's Department has guidelines around that as well. So we'd, we'd be concerned about that move. Um, we understand that, you know, the government is trying to um, raise standards um, and raise expectations, but I think people's personal um, liberty and li liability should be very carefully looked at before you start to, um, to tinker with, with settings. Um, I think here it's an interesting question about people serving on, on boards. Um, I think the, the, the more likely short-term outcome I would have thought would be just a lot more documentation and probably a, a, a much greater focus around compliance and um, 
regulatory kind of compliance and, and minute taking, which may not be that helpful in terms of organisations, which are obviously overseeing, um, in some cases, billions of dollars of members' funds. And, you know, that's where we really want them focusing. Obviously, um, difficult, controversial decisions should be thought through carefully. Um, you may wish to document that clearly in the minutes, but you, you don't really want um, every single decision um, being subject to a very laborious kind of internal um, uh, deliberation and documentation. I think that would be a poor outcome and, and really kind of counter the government's focus on, on red tape and, and wanting to um, allow organisations to, to operate um, as efficiently as possible and really to get members and, and trustees um, focused on how, you know, how members' best interests are satisfied and really getting the best return for them over the longer term. So in that sense, it could be a counterproductive um, step. And just that second part of that question, I, I guess, do you think that we will see uh, a reluctance of people to step up to the responsibility of being a fiduciary? It's a, it's a good question. In some cases, um, you know, there's, there's obviously mandated roles for specific bodies um, for employee and employee representatives. So that's probably less of an issue. Um, more broadly, look, I'm always hesitant to, to say that directors won't, people won't want to be directors. People um, always see, um, you know the interest in, in those kind of roles but you know there is a trend over a number of years of greater director liability being imposed and i think governments have done that as a way of showing that they think an issue is important but uh, we would we would say there are other ways to achieve that and um, anything that seeks to potentially take away the liberty or um, to impose a financial penalty on an individual should be looked at carefully and, and those fundamental principles apply so um I, you know i think it would be exceptionally far to say this went in no one want to sit on a super board i think that's probably going too far um but some might say well you know i'm going to be saddled with a lot more uh, documentation board packs um there's a much higher maybe scrutiny or um, at, attached and people are happy with scrutiny that's been very clear when we've talked to members in the sector is everyone understands the trustee obligation it's a different kind of um, obligation to say just a regular director of a company um, but equally you know, we, we need to try to make their job easier not make it um, harder in, in certain respects unless we're very clear that the new regulatory requirement is going to have a positive real world outcome for members right natalie the proposed um Record keeping obligations in this bill make it a strict liability offence. What, you know, what what will be the implications of that? What does it really mean? Because there's not a lot of detail around what they're asking for here, yet the contravention is pretty steep. You know, the, the penalty is pretty steep. Can you talk us through that, maybe? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Eva. So I guess to set the scene there, it's, it's already the case that uh, Section 31 of CIS sets out a really long list of things about which there can be these um, operating or prescribed standards in, in regulations. So it already covers, um, you know, things like contributions and fees and preservation and all sorts of things, including record keeping. Um, and so regulations can be made on that. There aren't any at the moment on record keeping, but obviously the intention now is that there, there will be. So what the proposed amendments in the bill uh, do with that is to then uh, require that the trustee has to ensure that those standards are complied with. So it's like this double, double up, there'll be regulations and then this obligation on top of that to ensure that those standards are complied with. And then the real power of that is that if the trustee doesn't ensure that those standards are complied with um, at all times, it's an offence of strict liability, as you said, 
uh, and 50 penalty units is the associated penalty. So strict liability um, just means that there's liability irrespective of fault. So it doesn't have to be intention or recklessness or negligence. Whereas at the moment, if there were some regulations on record keeping under that existing SIS uh, Act uh, provision, um, there'd only be a penalty if there was intentional or reckless non-compliance. So um, we don't know what the regulations are going to specifically say, but if they are made, uh, the trustee has to comply at all times. And yeah, this strict liability is, is now the, um, the consequence. And in addition, consistent with what we were talking about before with higher standards on directors, there's also this, this other new provision which says that directors, if they're in a position to influence the conduct of the trustee in relation to the commission of the record keeping offence, and they fail to take all reasonable steps, then it's 100 penalty units. So that's not a strict liability, but it's just this, again, belts and braces, there's a trustee penalty and then their directors can be found to be, be liable as well. So it's, it's quite tough. Yeah, a lot of new new obligations for trustee directors to get on top of. Um, Scott, just a, a question for you in relation to another um, aspect of the, the legislation and um, it's with regard to the regulation making power to ban certain investments or certain expenditure regardless of whether that expenditure is in the best financial uh, interests of members. In your submission, the ACTU has taken a, I don't know if it's fair to say, an alarmist tone maybe in relation to that. Um, why do you call this the most significant change that's proposed in the legislation? Thanks, uh, thanks Eva. <laughs> Uh, we're happy to be alarmed by this because yet yeah, we are. Uh, you know, I think this is unprecedented in terms of um, the overreach that uh, these proposals uh, provide um, to to the minister. This is not the parliament. This is you know, to the minister at their discretion, without um, uh, opportunities for review, uh, appeal, uh, challenge. Uh, let alone the ordinary recourse, as you would expect, um, of such a significant change of um, of the parliament to be on top of uh, these details. That would be a worst case scenario in most, in most scenarios, but we don't have that here. We've got uh, a proposal that effectively says uh, the minister um, has what reads to us as uh, the discretionary uh, capacity uh, to uh, take um, and in, take steps and in, to intervene directly into the uh, investment decisions uh, that the funds uh, make um, without you know, the ordinary courses of review. And um, that specific uh, power for the minister to uh, ban um, investments, um, not just investments, but expenses um, that they deem uh, not to be in the best interests of members uh, at their uh, determination or discretion or um, decisions subject to you know, the pressures of the parliament or the respective voices that they might be hearing um, is just uh, unprecedented. So we know that you know, there's a very vexed uh, views uh, within um, some of our uh, parliamentary colleagues around the various issues. They've been well traversed and well expressed. You know, I think it'd be uh, not um, uh, very obvious, I think, to most people who, who are the immediate targets of a change like this in terms of, you know, the new daily, you know, ISA, AIST itself, um, all of which, uh, you know, you could see um, being subject to uh, a stroke of a pen um, uh, banning 
their capacity to to uh, to operate. Contrary, of course, I think it's worth noting to the findings of you know not just the Royal Commission but the Productivity Commission and the regular and appropriate oversight of APRA about the appropriateness of all of uh, these entities and their role uh, in the system in the best interests of members uh, to date. Uh, let alone, you know, the and I, this might be an alarmist, but I think. It, an alarmist you know, perspective, but you know, let alone the very you know, real reality that we know, um, you know ministers make political decisions all the time for a variety of reasons, including uh, political convenience and political expedience. So you know, we know that um, just for example, Craig Kelly has a particular view about many, many things. So you know, to see um, an investment decision to you know, invest in a wind farm in New South Wales, for example, or any other state, or make a decision about climate change over the long term, um, with all the fiduciary evidence that we've heard about this morning, um, to be outlawed, um, is just completely uh, outrageous. You know, there's nothing short of it, you know, from our perspective, and uh, we're happy um, to sort of make the case and we'll continue to do so. It's extraordinary uh, these provisions of the Act. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't align well i guess with the concept of you know a, a, a trustee that is set up to look you know uh, for the long term to make to make important decisions managing other people's money you know on and acting in the best interests of their beneficiaries um and having i guess uh, the freedom and the discretions in order to to work along a, a long-term plan uh, and then have government uh, intervene um, une unexpectedly or in or in ways that you might not expect. Um, Peter, uh, the AI group doesn't always agree with the ACTU on things, as we know. Um, do you think that the ACTU's position here is alarmist? What's your view about the regulatory override provision in this bill? Yeah, uh, well, it's uh, certainly true that we don't always agree, but I think just to be fair, I think that um, when we disagree, that gets much more attention than when we agree. But uh, to the issue at hand, I think that the ACTU is absolutely right to ring the alarm on this. Uh, I don't think it's been alarmist, if that means to exaggerate. I think that we should be alarmed by it. Um, to me, it's remarkable that, um, you know, a Liberal government wants to create a power for the Treasurer to meddle in the running of super funds. Um, it's remarkable that the government is putting forward a measure that lacks accountability and that explicitly allows um, the Treasurer to meddle against the interests of fund members. That's quite explicit. Um, to me, giving this sort of discretionary power, in this case and in others, uh, to a minister is generally a sign that a government doesn't want to be upfront about what they intend to do, to be frank about it. Um, and finally, it seems to be blind to the fact that a future treasurer would also have this power. Uh, so um, I don't think it's alarming. I mean, I do think it's alarming. I don't think it's alarmist. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Um, I've got a, a question here from our audience. Surely reasonable steps, good faith and due care and diligence come into play. Provided there are governance frameworks in place, oversight and challenge along the way. Any comment on the theoretical issues versus the real world issues at play here? Natalie, did you want to have a go at that first? Sure, thanks, Eva. Well, I think that actually reinforces, though, the uh, feeling that nothing really needs to, to change in the legislation. We've already got those, um, those standards and all those mechanisms that, that do interact in a, you know, a, a sophisticated way. 
So I think it really just highlights the the point. Um, but I, but perhaps the the person asking the question is also saying, well, maybe we're having theoretical debates, and and really at the end of the day, it's going to be much the same. And maybe that's true, but um, I think there's sufficient concern about what's being done, and for all the reasons which have been expressed uh, today and in the submissions, that I think I think there is a genuine concern that this might be be overstepping the mark. Mm. Yeah, Chris, do you have a view in relation to that? Look, um, you know, I think governance, uh, you know, is crucial in, in these organisations, and obviously, you know, the governance of them has evolved over time. Um, it, you know, I think the, the approach today is probably very different to what it was maybe fifteen or twenty years ago. So, I think that's um, that's crucial, and, and you know, I think there's been greater professionalisation of, of directors generally, whether that's in the super sector or, or elsewhere, and I think that's always an ongoing journey for everyone. So. Um, Look, I, I do think it is, though, just taking a step back, really, um, from an accountability perspective, important that directors and trustees are held accountable for their actions. And, and part of that means that, you know, the government shouldn't, in, shouldn't intervene to prevent certain decisions from being made, to, to say, well, you know, you might consider it in the best interest of members, but we don't, and therefore we're going to um, prohibit. So I think that's a, that's a real concern if that's the case, because ultimately every director that goes on to, whether it's a company board or a trustee board, should realise that they, they do bear some personal risk in doing so. And so that should weigh heavily on them, but equally that should mean they, they bring a, a degree of competence and professionalism and, and dedication to the role. And then, you know, they, they should be happy to be judged on their actions, I think. So um, that, that's where I think, you know, Potentially, the government is maybe diluting accountability by trying to do that and, and really promoting more of a compliance, you know, paper-based approach to governance, which isn't, isn't always the, the best way. Yeah, your, your members too, Chris, probably would be, would be concerned, I guess, that this is, you know, the, the thin edge of the wedge uh, and that once, once you start reversing the onus of proof in relation to um, superannuation fund directors, that, you know, these changes can also be imposed on other company directors. Yeah, that's right. And look, there have been cases where governments in the past have reversed the onus of proof. And, and you know, I do think that is, it is problematic from a fundamental, um, you know, legal principle perspective. So, yeah, so look, we'll, we'll see, obviously, you know, there's been a lot of commentary from ourselves and others on um, this bill. So it'll be interesting to see where the government goes next on it. Yeah, all right. Well, I'm conscious of time. We've got about seven minutes left. So I thought I'd give you all the opportunity uh, to say what, what it is that you would like to see the government do um, with this bill. Maybe, Natalie, I'll start, start with you. What should happen next? Should the government abandon this bill on the best financial interest duty? Well, I think uh, that, that is my view. Um, I think that the word financial doesn't need to be added. I think that the um, reversed um, onus of proof uh, should also be abandoned. There are other things that could be done instead. Uh, for example, uh, like I mentioned briefly before, adding in a requirement to retain or you know, main, maintain records and, and uh, have evidence of particular decisions, if that's really what, the, what they're after. Um, and I am also concerned that the, um, the measures relating to individual directors uh, are too onerous and those should also be abandoned. All right, thanks, Natalie. Scott, the ACTU's view? 
uh, yes, we think it should be abandoned, um, even surprisingly perhaps. Um, but I think just on reflection, I made the point about reasonableness earlier, but I don't take comfort from that at all, given the trajectory of legislative intervention and the experience that trustees have had over the course of the last few years. There's very little uh, comfort that this, uh, if implemented, um, that we'll see a reasonable approach um, from uh, the newly empowered regulators. And that's not to reflect negatively on them, but they're discharging their duties um, as they're uh, legislated and empowered to do so. And that is uh, becoming, uh, would become um, a significant uh, burden and challenge uh, for fundamentally members to continue to enjoy uh, better outcomes. And I think really for us, it's it's this significantly, but then equally the combination of this with you know the stapling provisions, the benchmarking performance uh, provisions that just demonstrate that this is you know, an insidious uh, attack on um, uh, the better performing part of the sector and it will lead to members are best, uh, worst, worst detriment. All right, thanks Scott. Peter? Oh, thanks, well, um, the bill's got a number of areas, so I'll just comment on this particular one relating to the best interests. And we think that this could be abandoned, this part of it. The government, uh, the Productivity Commission, if we go back to that, um, recommended that the government clarify it. It didn't say that legislation was required. It came up with a range of alternative ways of doing it. It, sim it could simply just issue clear regulatory, clearer regulatory guidance to the regulators. And we think that would be the sensible thing to do. Um, and we don't have to go through all this, um, uh, this, this procedure and the compliance costs and so forth that would essentially divert funds and fund directors, fund managers from acting in the best interests of members. Thank you, Peter. And, and Chris. Thanks, Eva. So I think just taking a step back from this debate, you know, I, I go back to the words of Commissioner Hayne and he was very clear that in the financial services sector, we didn't need more law. We didn't need more regulation necessarily. Um, the, the voluminous nature of it um, is in some ways potentially um, complicated how organisations operate in this sector and, and maybe um, led against compliance in some respects. So I think the question here is, you know, how do we... Um, how do we make sure that directors are clear on what their obligations are currently? And so I think that's an education campaign um, for, for various organisations to make very clear what, what is expected. But also, um, you know, let's make sure ASIC and APRA actually follow through on their mandate. Um, that, you know, essential to governance is, as part of that governance ecosystem, are regulators who are interested, focused and willing to take on cases where they see action that is um, not not complying with the law. So I, I do think, you know, the very fact that we're only clarifying the respective mandates of the regulators um, now, as I said, ASIC's the conduct regular as of 1 January 2021, um, shows there's a bit of a way to go there. So I think, you know, I'd encourage those two regulators to, to work closer together. And then when they do see um, bad behaviour, then they shouldn't be shy and in taking action and taking firm action. And for the rest of us who hopefully are, are doing our jobs well, it's a matter of um, being really um, cognizant at all times that we are dealing with other people's money and that um, as a result, um, we are gonna be held to a high standard of account. So I don't think that's anything that should be um, intimidating. It, it's part of the deal of, of serving on one of these boards and you know, serving on a board which is responsible for you know all of our retirement savings. So I think that's, um, 
probably a, maybe a nice way to end. Thank you, Chris, and thank you to all of our panellists. I think we are you know, all in agreement that uh, trustee directors on our superannuation funds here in Australia need to be uh, held to account and need to demonstrate the highest standards and certainly act in their members' best interests. Um, I've been working in the superannuation industry for just over 10 years now, and um, I've seen you know lots and lots of proposals. And I think Chris mentioned in the in the opening, there's been so many reviews uh, into the superannuation industry over time. Uh, it is still, I, I guess, by by financial services standards, still a, a pretty young uh, industry, having only been sort of legislated as as compulsory and and almost universal uh, for all Australians since 1992. It has probably grown beyond anyone's expectations, and it is, you know, a significant part of our, our financial services system. Um, and our economy, but very, very important to the social fabric uh, of all Australians. So thank you. Thank you all very much. I don't think, however, in my 10 years in superannuation that I have ever seen uh, as united an opposition uh, to some policy in the superannuation space. So I really appreciate you being here today to share your views. I think uh, I'd be correct in saying that there is uh, a united view between um, the Law Council, the ACTU, AI Group, AICD and also AIST that while um, the objectives of what the government uh, is trying to uh, achieve in terms of you know, better transparency and accountability is admirable, uh, that this bill um, is, uh, goes over the top unfortunately and it should be withdrawn. That's all for this episode of Super Talk. For more episodes and for further information on the work of the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, visit our website at aist.asn.au and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.